Hey there, and welcome to Poemcast. Today, we're talking acid base. Now, just a forewarning, some of the things that we're going to be talking about in this episode, chemical formulas, equations, will be much easier to follow along with if you check out our show notes. Ideally, you will look at them before you listen, but if you decide that you want to listen anyway, please make a mental note to head to poemcast.com slash abg and take a look at the show notes. We promise this episode will make a lot more sense. So today we're specifically covering a little bit of acid-base history. We're going to cover some physiology. Of course. Listen, by now the people know what they're getting into when we listen to our show. I bring up the physiology and you complain about it. Right. Finally, we're going to be wrapping up with a five-step approach to ABG interpretation. Does this mean you'll be telling our listeners why you're so basic? Or why you're so salty? (sighs) Rach, you ruined my joke. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. This is an acid-based podcast. You can't bring up salts in an acid-based podcast. But the definition of a salt is a compound created by the neutralization of an acid in a base, like sodium chloride or copper sulfate. Rachel, the gauntlet has been thrown. I didn't think it was possible to out-nerd Jeremy on this podcast, but it looks like Rachel has clearly done it. Wait, I got one more. Hey, Jer, why did the acid go to the gym? Uh, to become a buffer solution. <laughs> All right, you two need to be separated onto the show. You are outnumbered. The body needs to keep blood pH in a very tight range, typically somewhere between 7.35 and 7.45. Now, outside this range, bad things can happen. Abnormalities in electrolyte concentrations, especially calcium and potassium, protein folding, membrane potentials, and cellular function. And when all these things go awry, specifically cellular function, we see problems in our tissues and problems in our organs. That may seem like a narrow range, but remember that pH is a logarithmic scale. Small changes in pH mean much larger changes in serum proton concentration. That is H+. Now, the problem is that we're constantly exposed to substances or changes in metabolism that, if left uncompensated, would result in large changes in pH. Like, when I was little, I used to drink pickle juice straight out of the jar. Could you imagine how much my blood pH would have changed if that was left uncompensated? Honestly, what's wrong with you? No, no, I don't do it anymore. It was just when I was a kid. I actually used to drink pickle juice when I was little too. You guys are scarily on the same wavelength today. I think we should invite Rachel on the show more often. I concur. Anyway, our body is able to keep pH in such a narrow range through three main mechanisms. The first is the bicarbonate buffer equation or the bicarbonate buffer system. And this system is able to resist changes in pH through Le Chatelier's principle. Now, this is going to be way easier to read if you look at our show notes, but if you're audibly inclined, this is that one equation that goes CO2 plus water, little, you know, bi-directional arrow, H2CO3, that's carbonic acid, and then another bi-directional arrow, and then bicarbonate plus H2. Now, I realize that an audible medium is super not great for that, so go ahead and check out our show notes. I remember that equation. The second mechanism is the lungs. So the lungs can control the amount of PaCO2 that you have in your blood, the partial pressure of CO2. It hyperventilates or hypoventilates in order to control this. So the third and final way that our body can keep pH at such a narrow range is the kidneys, which, of course, secrete or retain acid, do the same thing with bicarbonate, 
or they can produce de novo bicarbonate. One honorable mention is hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is able to act as a potent buffer by binding carbon dioxide to form carbaminohemoglobin, but we digress. Let's move on to the history of ABG interpretation. This is pretty interesting. So a guy named Donald Van Slyke popularized a method using the Bronsted-Lowry definition of acids and bases along with the Henderson-Hasselbach equation. Bronsted-Lowry defined acids as something that donates a proton in a solution and bases as something that accepts protons in a solution. Ooh, I know Henderson-Hasselbach. That's an equation that relates pH, PCO2, and bicarbonate. Bingo. Now, way back in the day, Vance Lyke, he was this Dutch-American biochemist, and he popularized the method of acid-base interpretation that almost all of us use to this day, way back in 1950. And this is all because his methods back at that time were only able to measure blood CO2 and blood pH. And therefore, serum bicarbonate was calculated from these values using the Henderson-Hasselbach equation. So most of the Van Slyke method involved interpreting patterns that arose from abnormalities in pH, bicarbonate, and PCO2 alone. Yeah, does that sound familiar? Sounds pretty familiar. Yeah, and this is a method that we're going to be teaching today. I do want to highlight, though, that there's a different and more quantitative approach to acid-base interpretation. It takes a lot more things into consideration, like the effects of chloride, lactate, and the strong ion difference. Oh, I know this. This is a Stewart approach, and it was popularized by Peter Stewart back in the 1980s. Stewart used about six equations inspired by many different fields of analytical chemistry to interpret physiologic acid-base status and... As I'm explaining this to you, you can probably see why the method hasn't gained widespread popularity. It's complicated. Yeah, actually, John's asleep right now, so good work. Oh, oh, what? (laughs) Though I will say the strong ion difference is a useful clinical tool. It's beyond the scope of this episode. So again, we'll throw some stuff in the show notes for you. On to the five-step approach to ABG interpretation. We've created a PDF worksheet for you, which you can again find on our show notes, and I recommend that you download and use with you whenever you're interpreting ABGs. But here are the five general steps. John, take them away. All right, so let's start with number one. First thing, look at your pH and see if you have an acidemia or an alkalemia. Number two, determine if your ABG is respiratory or metabolic. Number three, A, is if it's metabolic... Is it compensated? Number three B, if it's respiratory, is that an acute or a chronic respiratory condition? Number four is anion gap. And number five is your delta gap or your delta ratio or your corrected bicarbonate. All right. So why don't we go ahead and dive through all of these steps one by one. And let's start with the easiest one, which is determine if there's an acidemia or an alkalemia. This is one of those scenarios where Medical terminology actually matters a little bit. We have emia. What's that suffix mean? It means there's something in the blood. In the blood. In the blood. In the creepy. blood. <laughs> Rachel backs me up. Now, this is contrast to osis, right, which means sort of condition. And the reason we make a big stink about that is because you want to look at the pH of the blood and determine if it's high or if it's low. Now, for the purposes of interpretation, you want to think about 7.4 as being your normal pH. So if it's above 7.4, what you're looking at is an alkalemia. And if it's below 7.4, what you're looking at is an acidemia. 
to your point about just remembering 7.4, something that someone told me really early in my career was rather than just remembering all the different ranges, just remember pH 7.4, PCO2 of 40, and a bicarb of 24. Rule of fours. I love it. And again, if that sounds funny, if you remember earlier in the episode, we said 7.35 to 7.45 was a normal pH. It's just limitations created by using pH, PCO2, and bicarbonate as your means of interpreting an acid-based system that's actually way more complicated than that. So if you simplify things and just remember fours, like John was saying, your interpretation is going to go a lot easier. So to review, above 7.4 is a... Alkalemia. And below 7.4 is a... Acidemia. Dig it. Let's move on to number two. Determine if it's respiratory or if it's metabolic. So the way I think about whether a process is primarily respiratory or metabolic is I replace the word CO2, or carbon dioxide, with acid, and I replace bicarb, or HCO3, with base. So if your acid is high or your CO2 is high, are you going to have an acidosis or an alkalosis? That would be an acidosis because your acid's high. Yep, perfect. And is it going to be respiratory or metabolic? It would be respiratory. Exactly, because your CO2 is controlled by hyper or hypoventilation. And the same goes with bicarbonate as well. If your base or your bicarb is low, are you going to have an alkalosis or an acidosis? It's going to be an acidosis in that scenario. Good, and it's going to be metabolic. I really like that, and I think switching your understanding of CO2 to an acid and bicarb to a base really helps to put things in perspective. So if I'm understanding it correctly, the first step is we're saying is the pH high or low, and then the second step is we're saying which one matches. So if your pH is low and you think it's respiratory, ideally your CO2 should be high, but if your pH is low and you think it's metabolic, then really your bicarb should be low. Yep, either a low base or a high acid. All right. Let's move on to step three, and this is really divided into two parts, and this is all about further investigation. Let's start with the metabolic process first. What we said about the metabolic process, so if you've determined that this is a primary metabolic acidosis, for example, you need to determine if respiratory compensation is adequate. Never really understood what that meant, but there are equations that can help us. When I was learning ABGs, I always thought respiratory compensation meant that when you had a metabolic acidosis, you were able to breathe off enough CO2 to bring your pH to normal, meaning to 7.35 and 7.45. It was only until after practicing medicine that I figured out that wasn't the case. So imagine if you came in with a pH of 6.8. It's physiologically impossible for you to blow off enough CO2 to compensate all the way back up to 7.35 or 7.45. But that doesn't mean that you're not working. So there are equations out there that can help us. The most helpful equation in a metabolic acidosis is Winter's formula. It's going to be way easier if you can look on the show notes for this actual formula, but remember the name, Winter's formula. Just to read it out to you, it is 1.5 times your bicarbonate plus 8 with a sort of fudge factor of 2 plus or minus two. Now what this does is it gives you a new normal PCO2. So let's give you an example. Let's say your bicarb was 10. You do 1.5 times 10, and that gives you 15. You add eight, and that gives you 23. And then you have plus or minus two. So 23 plus two is 25. 23 minus two is 21. What that means is that your new normal CO2 should be somewhere in the neighborhood of 21 to 25. 
And that means that you are now compensated from a respiratory standpoint. So to say it differently, if your bicarb is 10, your new PCO2 to compensate that should be between 21 and 25. Let's say we have a DKA patient and their pH is 6.8. And we look at the gas and their PCO2 is 23. So by Winter's formula, they are quote unquote compensated. What's their pH going to be in that scenario? In that scenario, using the Henderson-Hasselbach equation, which we'll throw in the show notes, that person's pH would be compensated up to 7.25 if they were successfully able to breathe off their CO2 all the way down to 23. Not too bad. Which isn't too bad, but it's outside the normal range of 7.35 to 7.45. So if you were only looking at the pH, you would be tempted to say that this patient is uncompensated. But if you were to walk into the room, you'd see somebody like (sighs) huffing and puffing at the bedside. Right. I think that's a really good point. I think a lot of new providers in general are purely looking for a normal pH to say if someone's compensated or not. So I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So really, uh, just to remind you guys, check out Winter's formula in the case of a metabolic acidosis, with the idea being that if your bicarb is low, your PCO2 should also be low in order to compensate that. Have you found Winter's formula to help you in clinical practice? Yes. Though, what I will say is that, like many equations, it's only helpful when you don't know anything. So early on, actually going through the motions and calculating out Winter's formula was really, really helpful. And I've used it so many times that I've gotten to the point where I can eyeball an ABG and calculate a Winter's formula pretty accurately in my head just by looking at the ABG and tell whether or not there's compensation present. But you really don't get that muscle memory to work through that if you're not actually doing the calculations. But if you had an expert intensivist who maybe didn't use Winter's formula, I don't know that incorporating Winter's formula into their everyday practice would result in different clinical outcomes, if that makes sense. It would just make you realize, like back to our DK example, that that patient is quote unquote, doing the best they can do right with that current pH of 7.25. The one area that I do think it's really helpful is when the patient's on the ventilator and you have a severe metabolic acidosis and you're trying to crank the PCO2 all the way down to something like, you know, they're at 20 or whatever and their pH is still 7.1. It's probably not going to be very helpful to try to take that PCO2 down to 10 or 15 if they're already at a way overcompensated per winter's formula if that makes sense so i think it's helpful i think it's helpful when we are manipulating the patient's physiology so in the same vein number three b if a metabolic disorder is present let's also talk about metabolic alkalosis probably something that's less commonly encountered at least in our clinical environment If your bicarbonate is high, that's a metabolic alkalosis. And if you have a metabolic alkalosis, your lungs will also try to compensate that by holding on to CO2. So there are formulas out there to figure out if your CO2 is in the right range to compensate for that metabolic alkalosis. But to be 100% honest with you, I'm one of the nerdiest people out there and I never use this formula ever. If there's some nephrologist out there who does use it, please hit us up and tell me why you do. But the way that I think about it is that your PCO2 should really be, if you have a metabolic alkalosis, your PCO2 should be somewhere between 40 and 55. It should be above 40. You should be trying to hold on to acid to compensate that base. So the teaching point there is if you encounter a patient who's got a metabolic alkalosis, 
and they have a PCO2 less than 40, something's wrong. They're not compensating that metabolic alkalosis appropriately. What are some examples of why they, why something would be wrong? Like what would make them not compensate? Oh God, I don't know. CNS? Probably something wrong with your brain. Why do you think metabolic alkalosis is so confusing to new providers? Because we never see it. We know how to dominate acidosis. Right. But alkalosis is kind of like not really that sexy. Because we see metabolic acidosis every day with DK, sepsis, etc. And respiratory acidosis every day with COPD. What are you going to do? Like, I don't know, a hydrochloric acid infusion? <laughs> <laughs> to correct it? I think the most common metabolic alkalosis that we do see, though, is contraction alkalosis. Yeah. Right. Through uh, chloride loss and bicarbonate retention from Lasix diuresis or loop diuretics, which is super common. And uh, anybody remember what you used to treat? Contraction alkalosis? Diamox. Diamox, acetazolamide. It's, uh, yeah, it, it, one of the side effects of Diamox is metabolic acidosis. So it makes it the perfect medication to counteract the effects and also give you a little bit of diuresis. For those of you following along our five-step process, we're on step three. We just covered step 3B, what to do if there's a metabolic disorder present. And we're going to skip up to 3A, what to do if there's a respiratory disorder present. In this scenario, we want to determine if it's acute or if it's chronic. So, so far, we've, we're looking at the ABG. We looked at the pH. We've decided if it's acidemic or alkalemic. Then we've decided, based on the CO2 and bicarb, if it's respiratory metabolic, we think it's respiratory. And now we're trying to decide if it's acute or chronic. Is that right? That's right. Sweet. So one time I got a consult from another provider for a PaCO2 of 110. Woo! And guess what that pH was? Uh, Was the patient awake or not awake? Awake. Oh, then it was pretty good. 1.4. 7.34. Wow. Really? That's yeah. impressive. That's amazing. It's probably the highest I've seen. What was the underlying uh, abnormality? Severe COPD. Severe COPD. So where does that patient live? What's their normal PCO2? 7.3, probably like 95. Yeah. 90s, 80s, 80s or 90s probably. So I have a corollary story to that. I had a patient. Bicarb? Do you remember? Um, bicarb was like 55 or something. Mm. Oh, yeah, wow. 55. That's impressive. So I have a corollary story to that. I had a patient come in after an unknown CNS depressant overdose. To this day, we still don't know what the patient took. But the PCO2 was 80, and the pH was, any guesses out there? She was not awake. 6.8. Now check out the stark difference. So we have a patient who had a PCO2 of 110 and a pH of 7.3 something, and a patient with a PCO2 of 80 and a pH of 6.8 something. What's the difference between these two patients? One lives with a PCO2, like we said, in the 80s or 90s, and so his body has compensated appropriately over time with his kidneys, and which we're going to get to next, I presume. And so he now consequently lives with a serum bicarb of 40s, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So patients who chronically live with a respiratory acidosis and elevated PCO2 develop plenty of mechanisms to compensate that acidosis, principally retaining and producing de novo bicarbonate, but also other things like carbaminohemoglobin, which we won't get into in this episode. So how does this impact your interpretation of an ABG of a respiratory problem? The short Patients who have chronic respiratory acidoses have very little change in their pH when their PCO2 changes. Let's contrast that 
with patients who have an acute respiratory problem, they will have significant changes in their pH. The rule is basically for every change in 10 millimeters of mercury of your PCO2 from your baseline of 40. So for example, if you went from 40 to 50, that would be one change of 10. Your pH is going to change by 0.08 for an acute process and 0.03 for a chronic process or less, depending on how chronic it is. So to put that in, in perspective, if you took a patient who, you know, me, and took my PCO2 from 40 to 50, you would expect my blood pH to drop from 7.4, let's subtract 0.08, so you'd expect it to go down to 7.32. But if you had a patient who had a chronic respiratory acidosis and took their pH from 40 to 50, their pH may only change by 0.03, so it might go from 7.4 to 7.37 or 7.39, or shoot, maybe that patient lives at 95 and they're actually 7.47 when they're Mm -hmm. at 50. So the take home is acute processes, pH changes a lot, chronic processes, pH only changes a little bit. All right, so we've talked about determine if it's an acidemia or alkalemia. Number two, check if it's respiratory or metabolic. Number three, split into two parts. If it's respiratory, check if it's acute or chronic. Number three B, if it's metabolic, determine if your respiratory compensation is appropriate. And now we're going to move on to number four, calculate the anion gap. Well, what is the anion gap? So the anion gap equation is sodium minus, in parentheses, chloride plus bicarbonate. And really the way that you can think about this is take all your pluses, which is really just sodium, and subtract all of your minuses, chloride and bicarbonate, and they should be about equal. So if it's not equal, what does that mean? That means you have an elevated anion gap, and now you need to start using your brain. So to say, in other words, the anion gap really specifies that all of your pluses should equal your minuses. If you have an elevated anion gap, what that means is that you have some minuses in the mix that are not chloride and are not bicarb only we had a mnemonic to remember all of those minuses that could possibly <laughs> be in only. solution. If only. That'd be great. Man, I'm struggling to remember what it might be. Something like uh, dirt bags. <laughs> Brown. Brown sticks. Brown sticks. <laughs> no. <laughs> Someone is in their car shouting mud piles at us right now. <laughs> <laughs> mud piles, you dummy. Mud piles. Mud piles is the mnemonic that we often use to specify what uh, might be elevating our anion gap. And what I really want, we'll talk about mud piles in a second, but what I really want to highlight here is that each chemical on the mud piles mnemonic list has the ability to dissociate in solution, to donate one proton, and then donate one negative anion. So when we talk about the anion gap, what we're talking about is extra somethings in the mix that are negative. So, for example, methanol will dissolve into solution, and it will donate one proton and one negative anion. And that negative anion is what serves to elevate the anion gap. So, if you see an elevated anion gap, you really need to start thinking, which negative anion do I have in solution by remembering mud piles? Anybody want to go through it? So, M, methanol. U, uremia. D is DKA diabetic ketoacidosis, but 
don't forget your other ketoacidosis. Oh, yeah, whatever. Alcoholic ketoacidosis and starvation ketoacidosis. So then it should be K in ketoacidosis, right? Muck I know, but piles. then it'd be muck piles. That sounds kind of cool. It's muck worse piles. than dirk bag. <laughs> P, paraldehyde. What is paraldehyde? It's one of the uh, solvents used in antifreeze. Mm, in yeah, the old so antifreeze. Antifreeze drinkers. Yep. Yeah. Isoniazid is oh. I. Also iron. This mnemonic really doesn't work all that well. Yeah, that's frustrating. L is for lactic acidosis, our favorite elevated anion gap contributor. E is ETOH, or ethylene glycol. And S is salicylate. So, mud piles. If you see an elevated anion gap, start thinking, what is elevating my gap? If you're in the ED, all bets are off. All these things are fair game. If you're on the inpatient side, I would venture to say that the most common things that you're going to see in order are lactic acidoses, uremia from an elevated BUN, and then probably like a DKA or some sort of starvation ketosis. Though the others are still on the list, especially if your patient's low-key taking isoniazid or sneaking alcohol behind your back. Okay, so we talked a lot about anion gap and the mud piles or dirt bags or whatever. Dirt bags. Why do we differentiate an anion gap? We have the high anion gap processes, but what are the non-gap processes? So non-anion gap metabolic acidoses are typically, if you're thinking about things from a Stewart approach, changes in your strong ion difference. But if you're thinking about things from the Vance-like approach that we've been talking about, it's typically bicarbonate loss. Could also be chloride gain or, or something of that nature, but it's often bicarbonate loss. And so you think about things like severe diarrhea, where you're pooping on all of your bicarbonate, or uh, infusion of chloride, where you gain a bunch of chloride and lose bicarbonate in exchange. I wouldn't know anybody who infused chloride into patients, would you? No. All of us infuse chloride. Sodium chloride, by the way, is very acidic and can Have you cause... you looked at what the P, uh, pH is on a bag of Yeah, dog, chloride? it's super. It's like 5.4. Yeah, I thought it was 6, but I'm pretty sure in that range. It's low. Yeah. So we are infusing acid into these patients via chloride, and lots of things can cause a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. The things that come to mind are the mnemonic ABCD. Addison's disease, bicarbonate loss, chloride, drugs like acetazolamide. But you need to respect these because these are the conditions that can actually benefit from bicarbonate infusion. And that reminds me, what do you guys think about bicarbonate infusion for, say, uh, lactic acidosis? So let me paint a picture for you guys. Maybe you guys have differing opinions. Let's say you had a patient who had a pH of 6.9 and they had a lactate of 25 to give bicarb. Or to not give bicarb? Oh, man, that is uh, such a hard question to answer in a short period of time. I think you, I the way I always say this in, in teaching FCCS and various things is you could line up 100 intensivists in a row and ask them this exact patient scenario, and you'd probably get 30 who would give bicarb, 30 who would not give bicarb, and the other 30 would punch you straight in the face for asking them the question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then I missed a couple. That caught me really <laughs> off guard. 90, so 10 that would just run away and 10 that <laughs> would just shake corner. their head slowly at you. <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I think you could go a lot of ways with that. I think that I probably would because I'm weak and <laughs> I'm in <laughs> staffing okay, and just you. dealing with it. But, but it's not right. I think when you're at a point where your pH is so low that the heart's going to stop likely, I am going to try and throw things at it. But I, I shouldn't stir the pot. 
Right. You just know that you're, you just have to know that when you're doing that, you're applying a Band-Aid exactly. to a bigger scenario. So to, you know, paint some uh, color into this debate for our listeners out there, bicarbonate pushes for pure anion gap metabolic acidoses can actually ruin your intracellular pH, number one, and cause more dissociation of whatever it is that's elevating your anion gap. So let's take our lactate, for example. If I were to push bicarbonate in this patient, number one, I'm increasing my plasma tonicity because bicarbonate pushes at least are really, really hypertonic. Number two, all I'm doing is creating an environment where you can dissociate even more lactate. And so, yeah, you're buying yourself some time and falsely elevating your pH, but in another 30 minutes, that lactate's going to go sky high again, all because you pushed bicarbonate. So we all agree, if you did or did not choose to push bicarb, are you having an effect on ultimate mortality? Probably, no, probably no. not. Yeah, but the not. blood pressure gets so much better. It right does get so much better. The one scenario where I do think it's it's good to consider bicarbonate is, number one, if your pH is less than 7.15, and number two, if you think that you have an out. So if your pH is 6.9 and you're getting ready to start CRT and you're getting ready to start pressors and hopefully reverse whatever is causing your hyperlactatemia. Or you're getting ready to go to the OR for source yeah, control. Totally. Do it. But if you're already on CRT, if you've already done all the things and everything's getting worse, five pressers, that bicarb's probably not really going to help you. The other thing I say in FCCS about this is, and I think this is really confusing um, to nurses and new providers and, and RTs, when you'll, you'll walk in the unit and you can have a patient in bed 10 who has a renal tubular acidosis that we have on a bicarb drip at some crazy high rate that has a normal pH that renals rounding on and, and doing bicarb every day too and maybe they're even getting po bicarb and then next door in room nine you can have that five presser shock lactic acidosis patient who has septic shock and yeah the ph is 6.9 and we're telling you no bicarb and i can see how if you didn't really think through the anion gap metabolic acidosis versus the non how that could be confusing and if you think about it just real simply if you're losing bicarb either through the kidneys or through gi losses or whatever, then replacing bicarb makes sense. Right. Now, let me throw another wrench in the wheel here and then provide you a way out. What if, and uh, how do you determine, if your patient has an elevated lactate, this guy with a lactate of 25 we talked about, how can you determine whether or not he also has a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis that might benefit from bicarbonate? Is there a way to figure it out? Sounds like the delta gap. That is the delta gap. Now, delta gap is often used interchangeably with delta ratio and is often used interchangeably with the corrected bicarbonate. This is the last step of our five-step process. So you only calculate, we're going to use the corrected bicarbonate if the anion gap is high. So if you go to step four and you find that there's an elevated anion gap, go ahead and move to step five and calculate your corrected bicarbonate. What the corrected bicarbonate, a surrogate for the delta gap does for you, is it answers the question, is my metabolic acidosis pH low only because of an anion gap, or is there something else going on? The equation is pretty simple. Anion gap minus 12 plus bicarbonate. 
And again, this is in the show notes. So there's only two results you can have. Well, technically three. Two that matter. If your corrected bicarbonate is less than 22, you do have a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. If it's greater than 26, you also have a metabolic alkalosis. And if it's in the middle, it's just anion gap. So if it's between 22 and 26, it's just anion gap. So to put this in perspective, let's say our guy had a pH of 6.9, a lactate of 25, and his corrected bicarbonate was 19. What that would tell you is that his pH is 6.9, not only because he has an elevated lactate, but also because he has a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Does that color your perspective on giving bicarbonate maybe to this patient just a little bit? Yeah. No, I think I would feel much more comfortable giving him a little bit of bicarb. Glad we're talking about this. I see new providers all the time still trying to get a grasp of the basics. And this just doesn't get, the delta gap just doesn't get on their radar until they're much farther along in practice. So I'm glad we're talking about it. So the delta gap has the ability for you to determine, for example, if a patient has a respiratory acidosis plus an anion gap metabolic acidosis, plus a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. Woo! Talk about some acid-based problems. Now, I totally realize that this is not the ideal medium for you to learn your acid base, but hopefully our discussion was helpful for you to give you a good starting point. What we'll do is put everything in the show notes, and we'll go through one or two cases on a video and link that in the show notes for you as well. Well, until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading. And check out our show notes, homecast.com slash ABG. Toodles. <laughs> Toodles. <laughs>